so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. America's children are facing a crisis. Many are displaced from their homes, vulnerable and in need of care. What can we as Christians do to address this orphan crisis? At Evangelicals for Life, Brent Leatherwood hosted a panel discussion on creating an adoption culture featuring Herbie Newell, Emily Chapman Richards, Chelsea Patterson Sobolik, and Tony Morita. Let's listen to their discussion now. I'm Brent Leatherwood, the Director of Strategic Partnerships for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And would you just give a round of applause? I'm going to welcome my friends here, but just welcome them here to the stage. Thank you. So going left to right here is my friend Emily Chapman Richards. Emily is the Executive Director of Show Hope, an organization that works to approach orphan care in a holistic way, Mm -hmm. helping children in four key areas, adoption aid, care centers, pre- and post-adoption support, and student initiatives. She is proud to be a Nashville native, and she currently resides with her husband and three daughters in Franklin. Uh, Next is Herbie Newell. Herbie Newell is the president and executive director of Lifeline Children's Services. Under Herbie's leadership, this is impressive, Lifeline has increased its international outreach to 25 countries, grown into 12 states, attained membership in the ECFA, begun a foster care ministry, and started its unadopted strategic orphan care program. That's impressive, my friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lifeline is also an annual partner uh, with the ERLC, and so we're proud to welcome you here. Uh, next is Chelsea Sobolik, my newest colleague at the ERLC. <laughs> Chelsea serves as the policy director in Washington, D.C. office for the ERLC. Previously, she worked in the United States House of Representatives on pro-life policies, domestic and international religious freedom, adoption, and foster care issues. We're so proud that you're here with us. And finally, a man needs no introduction. Uh, Tony Morita, he's the founding pastor of the Imago Dei Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. He also is an accomplished author of multiple books, including one titled Orphanology. He's married to Kimberly, and they have five adopted children. All right, so enough of the introductions. (laughs) Emily, we're going to start with you. Your organization has a global presence. Given that and the title of this panel, can you give us a global sense about whether there truly is an orphan crisis? And what does that mean? Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here, honored to be sharing the stage with these experts. So um, you want to hear from them. So I'll just keep it short. But um, yeah, I think anytime, I mean, why we're gathered here, anytime a kiddo is not with mom and pop and not in a setting, a family setting, we have a crisis and we need to address that. And so to that point, yes, is there a crisis domestically and abroad with kiddos needing to find permanent and loving family care? Absolutely. Um, I think there is importance though in the dialogue to really be truthful with the um, statistics we're using or the way that we're defining the terms when we talk about kiddos that need to enter um, family care. And so when we talk about orphans 
and there being 140 million orphans. That's a statistic that UNICEF uses, and that um, that encompasses children that have lost one or both parents. And so sometimes, just in general public, you say orphan care. What's first kind of called to mind is children that have lost one, have lost both parents, either to death or disease, or cannot be with those parent with their parents, and so need to be cared for in a permanent family setting. And so something we've done at Show Hope it has um, actually I had the opportunity to write a white paper for Show Hope that's on our website on shifting our use to to UNICEF's number 15 million orphans, which is the number of double orphans worldwide, children who have lost both parents, because that's really for our services and what we're doing, the work at Show Hope, seeking to really um, work to establish timely and ethical solutions for family, for kiddos that have are outside of parental care currently. Yeah. Herbie, can you uh, add to that from a domestic perspective? Uh, you know, y'all do incredible work here in the United States. Give us a sense of what that means, orphan crisis. What does that mean for, for y'all? Yeah. We know right now in the United States, not only are there about a half a million kids in foster care, but there are 123,000 that are awaiting permanency through adoption. So mm-hmm. parental rights have been terminated and they need a family. And so one of the things that, that we see not just in the kids in foster care, but we also see just pervasive fatherlessness. And, you know, while I totally agree with Emily about the double orphan, when we look in the United States, our issue really is fatherlessness. And it's not necessarily that father is passed away, it's that father is absent. And when that absence happens, you see a a lack of relationships as well. And so a lot of the work that we're doing with these birth families, especially these moms, they don't have the positive relationships and they don't have the support to be able to take care of their children. And so a lot of these children are ending up in government care. And so we have a crisis and there's really such an, a, a, a place for the church to, to fill that void and to wrap around these families. And so I believe we really do have a domestic crisis. And it's not just because of drug or alcohol abuse. I believe the, the first part is, is absentee dads. And, and we really need to address that as the church. Yeah. You mentioned church. So let's turn to our pastor who's here on stage. Tony, when you hear the word orphan crisis or the, the phrase orphan crisis, actually, let me back up. There are some out there who say orphan is actually not a helpful term. Um, what would you say to that? And then orphan crisis, how do you help lead your church into thinking about these things well and engaging this issue well? So I think it's, it's, um, it's fine. It's, it's helpful to, to call it a crisis. I think one of the dangers of calling it a crisis is it can come across as just being a momentary problem that, you know, you kind of fix like a weather-related disaster and then you move on. But the reality is this, is, this, is, this problem has existed and will continue to exist. And so it's, it needs a long-term commitment and not just, uh, you know, be some trend or something that's just uh, sporadic. Um, but for me, I think the starting point as a pastor is not necessarily with what is a crisis today, um, but what does the Scripture say? For me, pastoral leadership involves creating culture in your church. And what we, we need to create is a culture of life, uh, a culture that values human life. And I think the, the way you create culture in your church is by leading with the word, leading by example, and leading with a plan. And all three are important. And so people need to see God's concern for the orphan in the scriptures. I mean, this is what motivated my own life. Um, you know, I got convicted by my own preaching at a youth camp, which is very miserable to be convicted by your own preaching yeah. because I couldn't name an orphan. And I'm telling people we need to care for orphans. Uh, the Bible says that we should. And so people need to see it in the text. And then it's very important that we just embody our vision. Uh, 
Um, that doesn't mean every pastor needs to adopt kids necessarily, but there has to be uh, skin in the game. There has to be some involvement. Otherwise, there's a gap in what we're saying and what we're doing. Uh, repeatedly in the pastoral epistles, there is this emphasis on word and example, word and example. Um, and then the plan, if there's no practical way to do orphan care, people will get frustrated if you're just talking about it all the time and there's no practical way for them to do it. And so it's important in that plan for people to see that orphan care is in alignment with your overall vision as a church. Oftentimes in, in churches, orphan care is like a maverick ministry that kind of runs by itself. But I think people need to see it under the umbrella of the Great Commission and Great Commandment and to see it's, this is just one of the ways in which we can do these uh, you know, essential missions of the church. Um, and then just giving them steps, giving them outlets, you know, promoting things like foster care, adoption, building relationships with social workers, caring for the functionally fatherless. As Herbie was saying, we've got so many kids who are, may not be technically orphans, but their, their fatherlessness is everywhere in our communities. Uh, partnering with good organizations. We don't have to you know, figure it all out as a pastor. There's, there are great organizations out there, so let's just partner with them. But for us, that's, that's, been, that's been the way we've tried to create a culture of life at Mago yeah. Day. When the good news is, you know, since you were convicted by your own message, it resonated with somebody. So uh, actually, since a number of uh, the folks in our audience and the folks watching at home actually are pastors, can you just quickly unpack for us, like, what did that, so you got convicted, what were your first next steps in, in that journey? Yeah, so I went to uh, Kimberly and I said, uh, baby, I want some kids. And we'd been married four years. We were living in New Orleans. And she said, well, how do you want to get them? And I said, well, I think there are two ways. Um, how about we consider uh, adoption? And uh, she was a little slow to say yes, but she, she said yes. And then she said, where do you want to get them from? And I'm a baseball player, or I used to be, I should say. Um, and so naturally, I said the Dominican Republic was where we should get, you know, because they have shortstops in the DR. And I thought we would get nine of them. And we would just dominate Little League. And she said, no, we're not adopting a baseball team. So um, we, I had been to Ukraine. We, we got in this journey of Eastern Europe. We went to get two kids, came back with four, uh, added another one later. And it, we, just, we just were motivated by uh, God's Word and the Spirit. Just, I wanted to have a life that was not just impressive in public. I wanted my personal life to, to actually surpass my public image. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like my own uh, assessment of spiritual maturity had been evaluated wrongly. I, I think I was evaluating my life and other people's lives by how well they're keeping up to the Christian subculture, what books they've read, uh, who they know, rather than how much you look like Jesus. And when I look at the ministry of Jesus, I see one who is absolutely committed to the marginalized and, and those who are in need. And I just said, I, I, don't, I, need to sacri I need to give up, surrender what people might think, and let's, let's start focusing on Jesus and realize that spiritual maturity is not so much about how, what you know, but about how you live, right. uh, how you live based on what you know. And so um, that was just some soul searching, man, that, that was going on in, in my own heart. And that's where that's, and it led to this. <laughs> well, thank you for that glimpse into your life. So Chelsea, you know, we're sitting here just outside of Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and uh, you have demonstrated excellence in a number of different ways, but one of those is by working on Capitol Hill in this issue area. Uh, last year at this time, we were celebrating the win of the adoption tax credit. Uh, why was that such a significant win in this space? 
Yeah, so I'm going to start with a little bit of history on the adoption tax credit. And it was passed in uh, 1997, broad by um, partisan support for that, that tax credit. Um, but when um, then um, House Ways and Means Chairman Brady was drafting the new um, tax bill, he removed all tax credits. Mm including the adoption tax credit. And the adoption tax credit is about a $1,350 tax credit that adoptive parents can claim um, to help ease the burden of adoption. And um, most families that adopt are middle class and honestly don't have an extra 20 upwards um, $1,000 laying around on adoption. And so it is a big financial um, burden to adopt. And so the tax credit was created to help ease that burden. And when it was removed, again, all tax credits were removed. It was not specifically targeted towards um, potential adoptive parents. But when it was removed, um, the adoption community, members of Congress, and the pro-life community all um, were in an uproar and saying, you can't, this is not right. This is going to um, even add more financial burden to people um, desiring to adopt it. And the heart is there. The, the pocketbook might not catch up. And so um, through a number of advocacy um, meetings and, and kind of the media getting involved in, and through multiple different ways, um, Chairman Brady, who is an adoptive father, ended up putting back in the adoption tax credit, which is huge for families that want to adopt. And there's certainly still work there. Um, one of the big asks of Congress is for this to be refundable. Um, there are a couple years where it was refundable. And so what that essentially means is instead of solely being a tax credit, people would get that $13,000 in their pocket. And so I've heard stories of families who adopted a child with disabilities and that $13,000 was what they needed to install a ramp into their house or to buy a specialized van for that child or all these different ways that that $13,000 in their pocket could could help. So there's still still certainly work to be done, but it was a huge victory that it yeah. did get put back in the, the tax Yeah, panel. absolutely. So we've kind of heard an update on the international front, domestic front, on the local church front, and now from public policy. Let's take a step back and at a more basic level. Why uh, is adoption advocacy, foster care, why are these uh, components so essential to the pro-life movement? Herbie, we'll start with you. Yeah, so I think first and foremost, we have to be about life outside the womb as much as we are about life inside of the womb. And so my wife was able to come with me, and one of her only requests was to go to the Holocaust Museum. And so we walked through the Holocaust Museum yesterday. And I think what was so humbling for me is we got to one particular section of the Holocaust Museum, and it was talking about how Hitler and the Nazis were euthanizing the disabled. And while we were in front of this, there were three people in wheelchairs reading the same thing, and one little girl just absolutely weeping. And it caught me aback to say, as believers, we should be the ones that are the most passionate about life outside of the womb. We should be the ones that are championing for every single life outside the womb. And so when we wrap around, in adoption today, especially the kids that are the most needy are the older and the ones with special needs. Yeah. And so we need to be the ones that are in the front line saying, we can provide these homes, we can care, and we're showing with our action what our rhetoric is, is saying. And so uh, even I love what T Tony says, he convicted it on himself in his message, we need to back up our rhetoric. And so just looking at a young woman going through a crisis pregnancy and saying, don't have an abortion, that's fantastic. 
But the most pro-life thing to do is to be waiting on the other side of maternity ward there for her and her child saying, we're here to support you. We're here to wrap around you. And so I just, I think we need a fuller pro-life rhetoric that's not just anti-abortion, but it's pro-life. And let's live life out to the fullest. And if we truly believe that God is sovereign, that God is good, and God is the author and the creator of life, then we see every life as sacred. And we see every life as worthy of justice and honor and dignity. And that's as much for the lady that's struggling with a crisis pregnancy as it is for that child that comes to life because she chose life. And so adoption and orphan care is just the way that we put action to that rhetoric as we, we, we step around there. And, and then the one last thing I'll just say is, I think we need to look past just adoption and orphan care, but also look into how are we going to support these families. And so not just say, oh, well, we're not, we're not going to support you unless you place your child in our home, but we're going to support you when your child is in your home. And that's something I think we need to look at as well. Emily, you want to add to that? Yeah, it's twofold. I, have, I kind of have two things. Um, the first thing I, I would love to say, through the work that we get to be a part of at Show Hope, um, we have some uh, care centers in China that care specifically for kiddos with um, significant medical and intellectual disabilities. And part, dovetailing off of what Herbie said, part of what it means, in my opinion, to be pro-life inside the womb, pro-life outside of the womb, we have a, we're really intentional with the care that we're able to give these kiddos. Um, we have a preschool, and we start collecting little crafts. We save every single craft that our kiddos make while they're in care. And we, ha- we know of 2,600 kids that have come through the care center, 770 of those kiddos we know have gone on to be adopted. And we know that the care center played a special role in maybe... Um, accessing them with surgeries that they needed or um, just uh, sustaining their life long enough for paperwork to be processed for them to enter their family through adoption. But something I think that, and I would love to encourage people that are in the audience and listening, those little tiny moments of going deep and being purposeful for, with kiddos that are in your care, whatever that might look like, is also pro-life. And it's saying, hey, your story matters and your story is beautiful and God is painting an epic story in your life, and we're going to capture your handprint right now so that when mom and pop are in the picture and we can send that handprint, that they can hang it on their Christmas tree and know that, hey, when you were two, this is what your handprint looked like. And we put those little pieces together for our kiddos' story so that they have that and that all about me at kindergarten, you know, comes along and they have a baby picture. And that's a little thing. It's very small, um, but it's important. And I think it honors the dignity. And that's just an example of, I think, being pro-life in all areas. Um, And then, yeah, I think we need to be exactly what Herbie said. Uh, If we're going to be pro-life, we're going to be pro um, the flourishing of human life. And I think what that looks like for our families that bring these kiddos home that have experienced early childhood trauma, whether that be abuse, neglect, the simple loss of that primary caregiver relationship of not being with biological mom and dad, we need to honor that loss and resource those families. And that's some of the work that we do. And I think churches are becoming, are making great strides, becoming trauma competent and offering care and seeing that, hey, if we're called to be the body of Christ and really be members with, alongside one another, we need to really do that. And we need to do that post you coming home at the airport or, you know, that final court appointment or whatever. We need to be there on, on all the days, the hard days. We need to make our churches friendly to families that have children that have unique needs. And, um, and so I think that that's beautiful. Chelsea, what would you add to that? 
You both said it so well, but uh, just to share a little bit of my personal story, um, I personally benefited from two parents who chose adoption. I was adopted from Romania as a, a young, young child um, to an unwed teenage mother, and it is not lost on me, particularly in weeks like this when we are um, advocating for life and um, for women to choose life for their babies. It is not lost on me, that brave young woman's decision. Um, so I was adopted along with five others from Eastern Europe. Uh, so we are well represented, and I always joke that the Olympics are the most exciting time in our house because we're all cheering for our different countries. But So I, I grew up thinking adoption was normal, and then I got into the real world. I was homeschooled as well, and I got into the real world and realized that not everyone had the same passion and gusto for adoption that I did. And it it broke my heart because, as Herbie was saying, it was just natural to me. And my parents instilled in us that life is life. It does not stop when a baby is born. We don't stop caring about that baby yeah. just because they're in, in the world. And so um, it, it just makes sense that as Christians, um, you know, adoption mirrors the gospel. And as Christians in our church and our communities internationally, we get to go out and mirror God in those ways, whether it's caring for an orphan or a child in foster care or mentoring or donating financially, whatever ways it looks like, we get to, to be the hands of Christ and to point back to the hands and feet of Christ. That's fantastic. Um, so, Pastor, can you can you add some words to that? Amen. Amen. <laughs> uh, I would just uh, maybe go uh, another step further that it's not just a creation, a Mago Day uh, thing, but it's also a redemptive gospel uh, yes. thing in the sense that uh, the gospel is all about how God has rescued us in our weakness, in our helplessness. And if anyone should identify with the poor, the weak, the vulnerable, um, it should be a Christian. And I, I don't think most people have an ethic that is shaped by the gospel. They, they see the gospel as that which sort of tips them into the kingdom, and then, then they're doing, you know, some version of morality, rather than seeing that the gospel is also that which should be shaping our very lives. And so what that means is when we see the orphan, we see ourselves, yeah. that we're not superior to the orphan. Uh, in the gospel, we are the orphan, mm-hmm. and God has adopted us. Uh, in the gospel, we are the stranger with no homeland, and right. we have inherited the kingdom. You know, yeah. in the gospel, we're the widow, and Jesus has become our groom. Like, if anyone should be identifying with the powerless from, from the womb, you know, onward, it should be a Christian because uh, we see ourselves in that helpless condition. Right. At just the right time, Christ died for us in our helplessness. So I think uh, we have all the motivation in the world when it comes to uh, caring for uh, life from, right. from the womb uh, to the tomb and beyond. Herbie, I want to specifically ask you about family reunification. There, there are some instances where adoption may not be the ideal resolution. Uh, in fact, in many cases, it's best for the child that the family is reunified. You have a program at Lifeline called Families Count. How has that been a helpful initiative in this particular regard? Yeah, so uh, maybe kind of a weird place to get into this world, but I was actually a, a CPA before I got into adoption orphan care. And so I, I look at everything from a problem-solving point of view. And when I heard there were so many kids in foster care, I realized there's two exit routes for kids in foster care. There's permanency through adoption, but there's also really the ideal, which is reunification with parents. And again, tell, tell you know, exactly what Tony said, 
we understand redemption in the gospel as the church of Jesus Christ. And so we need to be about wrapping around these families who've lost their kids to say, hey, you're, you're welcome in our churches. You want to come in here. And so we developed a program called Families Count. And what Families Count is really all about is it's giving tools to the local church to teach a six-week class that is state-mandated for anyone who's had their children out of their home for a lengthy period of time. They have to go through this class in order to, to be reunified. And so they go through this class. It's at a local church. It's taught by members of local church. But more than that, those, those local church members are wrapping around these families. Because what we've under, come to understand about the families is they're all impoverished. But their poverty is not always financial poverty. Many times it's relational poverty. So they may have people in their community, but they don't have the person that they call when they lose their job. They don't have the person that they call when everything's going wrong, can you help me out? They don't have the person that's going to give them a recommendation on a resume. And, and those are the types of things that, that we want to build for these families to build a community, to build a church community. And what's beautiful is, one, how many of these families have come to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Number two, how many of these families are now joining those churches that opened up their doors for them? But number three, how many are getting their children back in their home? And not just for a season, but successfully being reunified with their children. Mm. And so when the gospel of the kingdom is about redemption and we've been redeemed, why would we ignore and not give honor and due to these birth families? Yeah. You know, it's easy to get torn up by a child that's vulnerable. We need to get torn up by the adults that are vulnerable as well because they're just as important in the kingdom. Right. Emily, as we're starting to wrap up here, you know, uh, Show Hope comes around families uh, in the post-adoption time frame. So a number of instances, you know, maybe Tony, you've experienced this. You have a child, now what? Uh, how does Show Hope minister to folks in that season? Yes, yeah, thank you for that question. Um, we have one of our four programs, pre- and post-adoption support, and specifically what that looks like. Um, the first thing we do is we design our adoption aid application to ask intentional questions to say, hey, have you thought about the adoption journey? Have you thought about some tools that will be helpful in resourcing you as a parent that's gonna come alongside children that have experienced early childhood trauma? So we ask intentional questions. That's the first thing we do. The second thing we do is anybody that applies for a grant, regardless of if they um, qualify or not, have access to free resources. Um, uh, the Connected Child, a book written by Dr. Karen Purvis um, out of the uh, Institute of Child Development at TCU down in Fort Worth, Texas. A lot of great resources there. We offer a conference every year that we produce and put on and simulcast like yeah. this for churches <laughs> called Empower to Connect Conference that distills down trust-based relational intervention, which we believe is a really helpful tool and believe we, it's, it's the gospel. It's Christ embodying himself to say, hey, I want a relationship with you. I want to be face-to-face. -face. I want to give you grace. I want redos. Let's try this again, right. you know? Um, and so we do that annually and would love for any of the churches that are um, tuning in to, to consider hosting that as a resource for adoptive families. And then I think something, the last thing is um, that's really powerful is we scholarship annually about 200 professionals, church ministers, um, lay people, foster care and adoption, um, leaders in their church to trust-based relational intervention practitioner training in Fort Worth. Mm -hmm. And we've scholarshiped over 900 professionals to that training that are now out in their communities and starting their own ministries, starting their own um, community health centers that are aimed specifically at addressing um, situations that families run into with kiddos that have unique histories, right, and have experienced that that loss and, that, and, and need to grieve and honor that loss, but then also... Um, 
Dr. Purvis says relationship trauma that happens in relationship can only be healed in relationship. Mm -hmm. And so as parents and those that wrap around families, we have an incredible opportunity to see not only these kiddos here and brought to, to life in the world, but to flourish in their life to just grow and become that story that God has intended before the foundation of time for it to be. Powerful initiatives, powerful witnesses, uh, Emily, Hervey, Chelsea, Tony, thank y'all for being both the hands and feet of Jesus and equipping others uh, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with a friend. And join us next week as we premiere a new format for the ERLC podcast featuring Josh Wester, Brent Leatherwood, and myself as hosts with discussions on ERLC content, culture, and an interview with a special guest.